The following sermon was delivered by Rev. Laurel Gray at the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. Our call to worship this morning comes from the Rev. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There are some things in our social system to which all of us ought to be maladjusted. Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. We must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation The foundation of such a method is love. Before it is too late, we must narrow the gaping chasm between our proclamations of peace and our lowly deeds which precipitate and perpetuate war. We must one day come to see that this peace is not merely, that peace is not merely a distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. We shall hew out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. So often on this Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, we focused on that sanitized story of MLK as a civil rights leader and and activist, as Reverend Aisha talked about in our reading, one that lets us stay comfortable. We'll talk more about the the honest history of Unitarian Universalism and the civil rights movement the first Sunday in February. But today we're going to get practical because we know that racism is wrong, but we don't often talk about how it works, the mechanisms by which racism and racialized violence becomes possible. So that's what we're going to do today because it matters that we have the tools to understand racism so that we might actually thwart it, so that we too might be a threat to the system of prejudice. So there are three primary concepts we're going to cover that are all interlocking. They're moral injury, dehumanization, and moral exclusion. These are important because they are the mechanisms by which racism functions. So our awareness of them and our ability to resist them are key. And after we go through the definitions, we'll talk about how how our Unitarian Universalist principles are blessedly in direct opposition with dehumanization and moral exclusion. So let's start with moral injury so that we can understand why dehumanization and moral exclusion are necessary if one group is going to subjugate another. Moral injury is something that has mostly been studied in soldiers and veterans. And in the book, Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, the authors define it this way. Moral injury is the violation of our moral of a moral agreement we have with our own internal world, our own moral identity. So unlike PTSD, which they describe as being a breach of trust with the outside world, moral injury is a breach of trust with our most deeply held moral beliefs. So it's an internal breach of trust with ourselves. Moral injury comes from the haunting choices people are forced to make in impossible situation. It's the consequence of violating 
our most deeply held moral codes. So that's one thing. So what does it have to do with dehumanization? The social researcher Brene Brown writes this in her writes about this in her blog and in the book Braving the Wilderness, and here she's paraphrasing David Smith, who's the author of Less Than Human. Dehumanization is a response to conflicting motives. We want to harm a group of people, but it goes against our wiring as members of a social species to actually harm, kill, torture, or degrade other humans. So that's that fundamental moral code. And Smith explains that there are very deep and natural inhibitions that prevent us from treating other people like they're animals, game, or dangerous predators. So he writes, Smith, the author of this book, writes that dehumanization is a way of subverting those inhibitions. Michelle Mays, the chair of philosophy at Emmanuel College, defines dehumanization as the psychological process of demonizing the enemy, making them seem less than human and hence not worthy of humane treatment. So dehumanization is the way out of moral injury because it is a process by which a group's humanity is stripped away such that our moral codes no longer apply to them. We see this clearly with war propaganda that portrays certain groups of people as animals or as monsters. That process of dehumanization is a necessary step in order to engage in violence without violating our own moral code as humans. Brown continues writing, Mays explains that most of us believe that people's basic human rights should not be violated, that crimes like murder, rape, and torture are wrong. Successful dehumanizing, however, creates moral exclusion. This is our third term. Groups, Groups targeted based on their identity, gender, ideology, skin color, ethnicity, religion, age, are depicted as less than or criminal or even evil. The targeted group eventually falls out of the scope of who is naturally protected by our moral code. This is moral exclusion and dehumanization is at its core. So again, the the three terms that we have. Moral injury, which is a kind of trauma inflicted by violating our own moral code that makes us question our own humanity. Dehumanization, which is the process of defining a certain group as subhuman and moral exclusion, which is the outcome of dehumanization in which our moral codes no longer apply to a certain group and it becomes possible to engage in acts of violence without experiencing moral injury. So do you see how these three mechanisms interlock to create a functioning system? I find this frame helpful because it explains the dilemma of people who hold on to their prejudices beyond any seeming reason. Because what happens if you reverse the system? Take the civil rights movement and that indelible image of Ruby Bridges walking to school surrounded by the violent rage of white people who wanted their school to remain segregated. If the white people in that image accepted that Ruby Bridges was human fully and equally, she would no longer be outside the bounds of their moral code, which would mean that every violent thing those white people had done to a black person is then a violation of their own moral code as humans. So the choices are to hold furiously to their racism 
or to experience the profound internal violence of moral injury as they come to account for the ways they have violated the laws of their own humanity. That's one hell of a choice, right? It becomes a choice between preserving their connection to their own humanity or acknowledging the humanity in someone else. So what does this have to do with Unitarian Universalism? I think it's pretty clear that dehumanizing anyone based on their identity is fundamentally at odds with an ethic of love and a covenant to care. That's maybe the easy part of universalism. Now, I want you to consider someone whose violence is on a scale that is beyond your imagining, who embodies what you might call evil. Is that person still human? More importantly, would you treat them as human or would you support using their own tactics against them? This is where universalism gets hard. Because if we say that humanity is inalienable, that a person is a person no matter what, if we say that dehumanization is completely off the table, then we have to treat even the most violent person with humanity. And that's really hard to swallow, but it's also important. Because to say that we're universalists and we make a promise to affirm everyone's humanity and then add in a footnote that will abandon our promise if that other person is violent enough or evil enough, then our ultimate allegiance is not to humanity, it's to violence. If we're willing to negotiate after some impossible threshold of violence has been met, the thing that fundamentally informs our choices is not our commitment to humanity. The thing of ultimate power to inform our choices is violence. A covenant of universalism. A love ethic like we talked about last Sunday means that there is nothing another person can do that will get me to abandon my promise to treat everyone as human because that's about me. It's about my actions and they're not for sale no matter what you do. Do you hear how powerful that is? When we see all the dehumanization in the world around us, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, to feel like nothing we do matters. So rooting down into that place of power is an act of loving resistance. And this is what King talked about. Because when we are rooted down into that place that will not barter away another person's humanity, then we refuse the entire process of dehumanization. We make it impossible to get to the place of moral exclusion so no one is ever having to choose between their own humanity and someone else's. So language matters. The way that we talk about people matters. When we hear someone call another group of people monsters and we say they're human, when we hear someone call a group of people animals and say that they deserve to be exterminated and we say they're human, when we refuse to let dehumanization take root, we're interrupting the very process that made lynching and slavery and genocide possible. So yes, we remember the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, but let us remember it honestly. Let us put it back together each moment with our own resistance, with our own refusal to say anyone is ever less than human. As he preached, 
may we live caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied to a single garment of destiny, for injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There are some things in our social system to which all of us ought to be maladjusted. Hatred and bitterness cannot cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. We must evolve for all human conflict a method which, which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. And the foundation of such a method is love. This is our covenant. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org. All are welcome. <laughs>